Well, we've been in this series for uh, three weeks, and uh, it got broken up a little bit. But uh, for the next three weeks, we're going to be concluding this uh, Bible study series. It's called Cross Reference because there's great value in understanding the Bible uh, because as you see the outline of the Scripture unfold, you begin to see what I call cross references, that everything points toward the cross. God's Word is prophetic. It is written with the end in mind. And in this little series, we've been following uh, six parts in the series, but ten segments. We've talked about the law. That's the first five books of the Bible. Then Israel enters their promised land. Uh, then we enter the period when they had kings, the reign. And then, because of backsliding, Israel backslides. They're taken into captivity. And uh, then they rebuild their nation. Last time we were together, we talked about two unique sections of the Old Testament. Poetry, uh, that's the book of Job through the book of Song of Solomon. And also prophecy, 17 books that speak to Israel during that time they were backslidden and they were struggling. Tonight we begin the second half of our series. And we're going to turn our attention to the New Testament. As we open its pages... Uh, you, you open to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 and you notice that the world of the Jews has dramatically changed during the 400 silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Nobody heard a word from God between Malachi chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 1. And during that time, since the Old Testament is closed and up until the New Testament opens, many things have changed. The nation of Israel has returned to their land, but they're no longer self-governing. After Assyria conquered the northern kingdom and Babylon conquered the southern kingdom, then the Medo-Persian Empire came in and then the Grecian Empire came in and they dominated many nations, including Israel. And then the Republic of Rome began to extend its power far beyond the Italian peninsula and Rome began to conquer everything in its path under leaders like Julius Caesar. Roughly 25 years before Jesus was born, Rome appointed its first emperor and dominated the then known world for the next five centuries, well beyond the closing pages of the New Testament. During the exile, many other things changed. The Jews were without a temple, so they set up something called a synagogue. It wasn't a place where they did sacrifices. It was a place where the rabbis taught the law because the priests couldn't observe the feasts or the festivals, and they didn't have a temple. And even when the temple was rebuilt, the synagogues continued to be used and they've lasted right up until modern times. And so you see synagogues referred to in the New Testament. They didn't exist in the Old Testament. The exile also created some fissures and fractures in the Jewish nation. And religious sects like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, they all began to rise and they had their own followings. And we see those groups through the New Testament in the background of the, the Scripture. The exile had dispersed the Jews from their nation throughout many nations. And by the time of Jesus, most of the Jews lived actually outside of their own nation. And some who returned, like the Samaritans, 
they had intermarried with other cultures and they had adopted pagan lifestyle. And so even though they came back to the nation, they were ostracized by the Jews. And as you open the pages of the New Testament, all of those tensions exist behind what you're reading. During the 400 silent years, in addition to the law of Moses, remember that was called the Torah, there was a collection of traditions written down called the Mishnah. And then comments by all the rabbis over those uh, centuries called the Gemara. And they were added. And this became known as the Talmud or the Oral Law. And ultimately the Oral Law came to have more direct impact on everyday Jewish life than even the Law of Moses. And of course Jesus had a real problem with that. With those traditions having control over people instead of people following the Law of God. And so that's why you see this running battle between Jesus and the Pharisees all through the pages of the Gospels. So, as we open the pages of the New Testament, there are political tensions with Rome, and there are religious tensions with groups like the Pharisees, and there are cultural tensions with groups like the Samaritans. But over that 400 years, there have been some pretty good developments also. The Medo-Persian Empire, they allowed the Jews to return home to their land and build Jerusalem again and build the temple again. And then the Grecian Empire, they came to power and they gave the world a common language, the Greek language, one of the most descriptive languages in the history of the world. And that enabled the New Testament to be written and read and shared with the masses who spoke the Greek language. God was in control the entire time. And the Roman Empire, they had to get from province to province, territory to territory quickly. So they built safe, protected roads everywhere that they ruled. And that enabled the spread of the gospel throughout the known world very, very easily. And so again, God was in charge. Uh, now, this is sort of like a Bible survey, Bible study. So if you take a quick overview of Rome's emperors in the first century and you look down that line of Roman emperors it sets up the background of the gospels and the background of the book of Acts and even beyond. First there's Augustus and he comes to power in 27 BC and he's the first emperor and he consolidates that empire. He's the one who took that census in Luke chapter 2. He's the one that caused Mary and Joseph to, to go to their hometown. And that's why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But he's also the one that revived the Roman state religion. Dominus edus. It was Lord and God. And so they wanted people to worship the emperor. Then there was Tiberius. He was the adopted son of Augustus. He was very suspicious and, and, and he was very afraid of people. He spent the last 10 years of his reign on an island called Capri and he was actually smothered by his successor, they say, with a pillow in bed in the middle of the night. So maybe he had good cause to be suspicious and a little fearful. His successors, you've probably heard his name, Caligula, the emperor. Caligula developed, it seems, like a mental weakness and he demanded worship and he exhausted the public treasury building all kinds of monstrosities and he was assassinated by his guards and then Claudius came to power and he was actually a good emperor but he had a physical paralysis and, and, and a speech impediment but he's the one that chose to expel what he called the cults. 
If you read Acts chapter 18, they're kicking out the cults. Well, that to them is the Christians. And so he's there in the background of, his, uh, of the New Testament. He ended up marrying his niece. That's kind of weird. She poisoned him. That's even more weird. And then Nero comes to power. And Nero is one of the worst emperors in the history of the Roman Empire. He actually murdered his mother Agrippina and he murdered his wife. And Nero is the one that when the great fire of Rome happened in, in A.D. 64, around that time, he blamed the Christians for that fire with no evidence. And he's the one who executed the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. And we're not sure who else. Then there was a trio of emperors, uh, Galba, Otho, and Vitellius, and they were all, uh, they came to power within about a year and a half, and, and one killed the other and came to power, and one killed the other, and it was just a mess and of quick transitions. And, and, and then Vespasian came to power. This is the man who built the mighty Colosseum in the city of Rome, and he sent his son Titus, this is very important, Titus was an army general under his father, the emperor, and he sent Titus to Jerusalem in A.D. 70 to destroy the city. And then Titus came to power after his father. He had a brief reign, but he was a popular emperor. And finally, this is the end of the New Testament. A guy named Domitian comes to power. He was actually Titus' younger brother. He demanded worship. He persecuted the Christians. And it was this final emperor that exiled the apostle John, the longest living apostle to the Isle of Patmos. So that's history. That's ancient history. That's even Roman history. But that's the background and the backdrop for the New Testament. All of those men, in the decisions they made, they impacted the background of Scripture. Now, Rome controlled the then known world. And some of their provinces were peaceful and easily ruled, but not the nation of Israel, not Palestine. It was a constant hotbed of conflict and uprisings, and crucifixion was often used as a deterrent in those kind of provinces. Men like Pontius Pilate, uh, men like Felix and Festus, they were sent by Rome uh, to Palestine to be proconsuls to enforce the Roman peace. They enforced peace by killing people, but that's another subject for another night. And they went and they were the rulers over those territories. But because the Jews were so insistent on their religious traditions, Rome did allow the Jews to have a figurehead king in place during New Testament times. They had no power whatsoever. They were just a figurehead, but they allowed them to have kings and they just happened to all be from the same dynasty, the descendants of Herod the Great. They had no real power, but they kind of helped Rome to control the people. Herod the Great was the one who, uh, he tried to deceive the wise men. He, he ordered all the baby boys under two slaughtered. He was trying to kill the Jewish Messiah. And then three of his sons came to power, Archelaus and Philip and Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the one who murdered John the Baptist, and he was the one that put Jesus on trial uh, in his uh, court. And then there was Herod Agrippa. Uh, Herod Agrippa, he persecuted Christians. This is the man that executed the Apostle James and imprisoned the Apostle Peter. And God smote him because of his pride. And he died publicly and gruesomely with a horrible intestinal disorder. And then there was Herod Agrippa II. And, and Festus was the procurator of, of Judea. And Herod was his religious advisor. And this is when they tried the Apostle Paul. 
and uh, this guy was a bad guy. He, he actually joined with the Roman general Titus when Titus came through and conquered Jerusalem and ripped down the temple again. He joined with Titus in triumph over his own people. Th these were evil and corrupt men. But here's the point. I know that's a lot. It's like drinking from a fire hydrant. But, but here's the point. All of these men, the Herods, the proconsuls that were sent from Rome, the Roman emperors... All of these moving pieces. Can you imagine this? But it sets up every single story in the Gospels and in the book of Acts and even beyond because their decisions are impacting the citizens of the Roman Empire. Now, let's get to the Bible. The New Testament was written over a period of about 40 years in the first century. About 40 years or so. Jesus' crucifixion and the birthday of the church happened around the year A.D. 30. But nothing was written down for 20 years until James and Galatians, those two letters, were penned around the time of the church council in A.D. 50. That's Acts chapter 15. And then Paul started writing letters. And Paul wrote letters all throughout his missionary journeys. In the 50s he, of the first century, he wrote First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians and Romans. He wrote more letters during his first imprisonment. That was Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians and Philemon. And then he wrote some personal letters when he was released for a time to Titus and to Timothy. That was in the early 60s of the first century. And that led up to his second imprisonment. Three of the Gospels were written during this time, in the early 60s of the first century, as well as the book of Acts and First and Second Peter. And then Paul goes back to prison in Rome, and he writes his final letter to his young friend, Timothy. Paul's final letter, 2 Timothy, is written from prison, not long before his execution in A.D. 64. And Peter died that same year. Many other Christians were put to death during that decade. Hebrews and Jude were written sometime during the 60s. We're not sure if it was early in the 60s or late in the 60s of the first century, but it was sometime before the destruction of the temple by the Romans in A.D. 70. And then for the next 20 years, from A.D. 70, everybody that was an elder, everybody that was a leader is gone except for the Apostle John. He's the only surviving apostle for the next 20 years. And he doesn't pick up his pen until the early 90s of the first century when he sits down and writes five books. The Gospel of John, three epistles that bear his name, and the book of Revelation. Until the New Testament was written, in the second half of that first century, please remember that Old Testament scriptures were all the Bible that that early church had. They didn't have a New Testament. It hadn't been written yet, or at least it hadn't been assembled and distributed to them yet. So they only had the Old Testament. Please hear uh, me tonight. There is a movement afoot in the Christian world today to discount and discredit and almost ignore the Old Testament parts of the Bible. And if there ever was a time that we need to stand up for the word of God, it would be when people that name the name of Jesus say, we don't need the Old Testament, we're New Testament believers, we just go with the New Testament. The first century church only had the Old Testament to preach from. But yet they won the lost, they evangelized their world, they, they, they preached sermons. 
Peter quoted Joel at Pentecost to explain the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He quoted Psalms to prove the resurrection of Jesus. And on and on it goes. Uh, when, when Stephen was defending himself before the Jewish council, he opened with Genesis. He closed with Isaiah. He referred to Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Amos in between. It was all the scripture they had. Philip taught the Ethiopian eunuch about baptism in Jesus' name using only the writings of the prophet Isaiah. And James concluded that Jerusalem council by quoting Amos. It's everywhere there. So we are still apostolic believers. We love the New Testament. We're a New Testament church. We've got a New Testament experience and a New Testament reality. But the Old Testament is the foundation. It's the picture book that pointed ahead to the revelation of the New Testament. So as apostolics, we love the entirety of the Word of God. We don't throw out the Old Testament. We love both Testaments. But that being said, the word testament is a legal term. A testament is an arrangement made by one party which can be accepted or rejected by another party but which that second party cannot alter. And if that second party accepts the testament, then it binds both parties to the terms of the covenant. And so that's what happens with a testament. There's the Old Testament and there's the New Testament. The Old Testament is a covenant of law, but I thank God we live in the New Testament. It's a greater covenant. It is a covenant of grace and truth. John said the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I'm glad when I have a relationship with God, it's not just based on law because I couldn't keep the law fully and perfectly on my best day. But God looks at me and Jesus came and he was both grace and truth. He loves you enough to tell you the truth about yourself, but he loves you enough to give you grace to get you through. That's the God we serve. Now don't assume, not for a second, that grace is a lower standard than the law because it's actually a higher standard than the law. Which is a higher, harder law to live by? Don't kill, that's the Old Testament. Or don't hate anybody, that's the New Testament. That's harder. What's more difficult? Old Testament, don't commit adultery. Or New Testament, don't lust. That's a higher law than the Old Testament. So grace isn't a cheaper standard or a lesser standard. But the difference in the New Testament is that our motivation and our strength and our power now comes not from God's holy law on the outside, but our strength and our power and our motivation comes from God's Holy Spirit on the inside. That's the New Testament. Look at what Paul said to the Galatians. He said, before faith came, we were kept under the law. We were shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. In the Old Testament, it wasn't here yet. Wherefore, the law, don't throw it out because it was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. So we honor it, we study it, we preach it, we teach it because it was our teacher, it was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So here's our relationship to the Old Testament today. We embrace it, we love it, we study it, we learn from it. Those stories and those types and shadows 
point us to the New Testament, but we're no longer under the Old Testament. And aren't you glad about that? Because Israel couldn't keep that law perfectly, and we can't keep that law perfectly, but there's a law of the Spirit written on the tables of our heart in the New Testament. So I don't keep the law because I have to. I keep the law because I want to. I don't keep the law out of fear of God. I keep the law out of the love of God that is shed abroad in my heart. That's the new covenant. It's amazing. But you can't fully understand the Old Testament without the New Testament. And by the same token, you can't fully understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. One reveals the other back and forth. Now here's what Paul wrote about the Jewish people of his day. He said, their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil that's untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. He said they've got a veil over their eyes. They can't see. They can't understand. He said, but... But the veil that's over the Old Testament, it's taken away when you're in Christ. That's why you can read the Old Testament, which wasn't even written directly to you. It was written to Israel. But you can read the Old Testament. You can get in the middle of the Psalms. You can get in the middle of the story of David or Joseph or Moses. And God starts talking to you. You know why? Because when you got the Holy Ghost, that veil that hides the meaning of the Old Testament, it was lifted off of your eyes and for apostolic people we just love the whole counsel of the word of God it's amazing now this is the genius of the new covenant the new testament Jesus died you, you know how this works anybody that suffered a loss in your family and you've had to deal with their last will and testament Jesus died to put his last will and testament into effect because you have to die to put a testament into effect. But then he rose again and became the executor of his own last will and testament. It's amazing. You say, is that in the Bible? Oh yeah, look at this. This is Hebrews. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is whether old or new, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Jesus had to die to put the New Testament into effect. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. So Jesus died so that all the provisions that he purchased with his own blood could come into effect for us, that you could receive your inheritance because Jesus paid for it. But he wanted to make sure you got what was coming to you because of the New Testament. So he not only died to put the New Testament into effect, he rose again from the grave on the third day and he is the executor of his own estate. Thank you very much. Praise the Lord. And isn't it wonderful to be a New Testament Christian? That's awesome. That's just amazing. I'll say one final comment and we'll jump in. Not going to be long tonight. Famous last words from Pastor Raymond. The New Testament doesn't really begin at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. It begins somewhere else. Jesus said, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So Matthew 1 verse 1 is where we start reading. 
But that's not really the New Testament until blood is shed. But when that blood was shed, that opened up the power and the provision of the New Covenant. So in this little lesson tonight, we're just going to talk for a few moments about that section of our outline that deals with the Lord Jesus Christ. Four books, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these first four books of your New Testament, they're, they're called the Gospels, they, the good news. They tell the story of Jesus. The first three are called by scholars the synoptic Gospels. They have a similar view, the same view, synoptic, uh, the same view of Jesus. They were all written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all written in the decade of the 60s in the first century. And they focus on what Jesus said and what Jesus did. They're not always written in chronological order. That's why when you're reading the Bible, you, you'll think, well, I thought that was worded different, or I thought this happened before that, and, and you're reading something different. The Gospels aren't written in chronological order because the writers, they arrange the teaching and the miracles of Jesus. They arrange the events of his life for maximum impact, not just for chronology. And, and that's why you see differences in the Gospel accounts. But the final gospel of John, it wasn't written in the 60s. It was written in the decade of the 90s of the first century. And it doesn't so much focus on what Jesus said and what Jesus did. It focuses on who Jesus is. And we'll get to that in a minute. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. That's where he got all the material for his gospel. He followed Jesus as a disciple. He wrote his gospel to the Jews. And that's why Matthew does something that no other gospel writer really does as much. He consistently refers back to the fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament. Because he wants to show the Jews that this Jesus that we preach, he's your Messiah. And so Matthew will write things like this all through his gospel. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. Notice that word fulfilled. He said, I'm going to reach back and I'm going to grab an Old Testament prophecy and I'm going to show you how it is fulfilled in this man named Jesus. Saying, this is what the prophet said, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Matthew just said, this Jesus that was virgin born, he's fulfilling a prophecy of the prophet Isaiah. And so he reaches back and he said, this happened so it would be fulfilled. And he does that constantly writing to the Jews. Mark, he's the youngest of all the gospel writers. And he was a companion of Peter. Um, and, and so he, he, he got a lot of his information from the apostle Peter. And he wrote his gospel to the Romans. Depending on the region of their empire, anywhere between 15% of citizens up to 40% of citizens were slaves in Roman times. And so they were very familiar with slavery, having servants and slaves. And that's why Mark, in writing to the Romans, he consistently portrays Jesus as a servant. In fact, he's a servant who's on a mission. Mark likes the word straightway he went here and straightway he did that. And straightway, Jesus is a servant on a mission doing the will of heaven to redeem us. But Mark also likes to use that word servant. And so he writes things like this. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. He's the serving one. He's the humble one. He didn't come to be ministered unto like all of you Romans who have your servants and you have your slaves. No, he came to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. 
And then there's the wonderful gospel of Luke. Luke was a companion of Paul, and he actually traveled often with the apostle Paul. Luke, of course, was the one who not only wrote the gospel of Luke, he wrote the book of Acts. And you can tell in the book of Acts when Luke is with Paul and when he's not. Because he'll either say, they did, they went, they said, or he'll say, and we went, and we did, and we met, and we said. You can tell when he's there with Paul in the book of Acts. It's, it's amazing. He writes his gospel to the Greeks. The Grecian Empire, it had been the birthplace of the humanities. History, art, philosophy, language, law, that was the humanities. The Grecian world, the Greek empire, introduced all of those areas of study about human beings to the world. And that's why Luke consistently portrays Jesus as the perfect man. You're looking for a perfect human. You're looking for a human that checks all the boxes and dots all the I's and crosses all the T's. Well, Jesus is the perfect man, and we need to follow his example. So in the Gospel of Luke, he's constantly talking about Jesus, the Son of Man. He's the perfect man. He's the perfect human. And, and as he records different events, he'll say things like this. This is after the crucifixion, and Jesus has just died. And, and, and this is what Luke writes about it. When the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man. And so that's what Luke's always pointing us to. And so uh, that, that wasn't very long because I needed to get to the Gospel of John because it's my favorite and I hope if it's not already, it'll be yours by the time I'm done. John was also a disciple of Jesus, but he outlived everyone else in his generation. By the time John puts his pen to paper, more than 60 years after the day of Pentecost, he is keenly aware that he is the only original voice left. He's the only elder left. Matthew and Mark and Luke are gone. They wrote their Gospels 30 years earlier, and they perished in the persecution. His friend Peter is gone. Peter was crucified upside down at his own request because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner as his master. And, and the pen of the Apostle Paul, who wrote so many epistles, that pen has been silenced forever because Paul was brutally beheaded by that crazy emperor named Nero around the same time as Peter died. And so for the last three decades, John has been the only one left standing. He is the sole surviving elder of the first century church for many years. And that is why his gospel does more than any other gospel to tell us not just what Jesus did, not just where Jesus went, not just what Jesus said, not just who Jesus met, but his gospel concentrates on who Jesus is. And I want to say this again very strongly. If we lose the revelation of who Jesus is, there is no other revelation that really matters. Because if Jesus isn't God, all this preaching and all this Bible and all this church building stuff, it doesn't matter a hill of beans. But if Jesus is God, you're not wasting your life. If Jesus is Almighty God, He can heal you. If Jesus is Almighty God, He can touch your life and touch your family and restore things and do miracles if He's Almighty God. Well, good news 
He is almighty God. He was God manifest in the flesh and then received up into heaven. So he's God and he can do any of that. And so John starts his gospel very differently. And uh, he, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then he continues by saying, and that word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And here he goes again, full of grace and truth. So this is God manifest in the flesh. When we worship Jesus, we are not worshiping the dead founder of our religion. We are not worshiping uh, somebody who's in a tomb somewhere. But neither are we worshiping something or someone that is sort of like God, a part of God, a sliver of God, part of a committee of gods. We are worshiping the one true and living God. When you say Jesus, you have instantly accumulated every covenant name of God in the Old Testament. You don't have to memorize them. You don't have to have them on a list somewhere. You don't have to remember whether it's Jehovah Jireh or Jehovah Nisi or, or you don't have to remember remember that all you need to do is say the one new testament covenant name the lord jesus christ and when you say jesus boy you've said a mouthful when you say jesus you've enfolded every old testament name of god if god could visit hebrew boys in the flames of fire in the old testament jesus can visit you in your trial in the new testament if god could pop daniel out of a lion's den unharmed god can see you through your trial he can get you out the other side. If God can part the water, he can make a way where there is no way in the New Testament because when you say Jesus. So why don't we just take a moment in the middle of Bible study and think about whatever it is that you dragged in here like your dog dragged in something you didn't want in your house and the devil tries to drag stuff in your life, and then sometimes you come to church, and you drag it all into church, and you're sitting there still thinking about it, and we're trying to have church here. Would you stop thinking about that? Huh. But I'll tell you what will fix it is when you think about your problem and then you think how much bigger Jesus is than your problem and you just lift up the name of Jesus specifically over your problem. God, you can heal that. God, you can fix that. God, you can deliver me from that. God, you can see me through that. And when you lift up that high name of Jesus over your problem, it makes a big difference. <laughs> oh my, my, my. Now, this revelation of Jesus' identity, this is something that's burned deeply into John's spirit. And I think this is why he's my favorite gospel writer. Um, he, he's got a memory that, that really is something. Sixty years after the fact, he still remembers the hour of the day that he met Jesus. It was 4 p.m., according to John 1.39. He remembers. Sixty years later, he remembers what time he met Jesus on that first day. And, and he recalls little details in his gospel. Six water pots at the wedding in Cana. Not five, not seven, six. He remembers that that Samaritan woman left her water pot and ran away to share her testimony. He remembers that anonymous cripple at the pool of Bethesda. He remembers that that guy had been sick for 38 years. He remembers that 60 years later. He's, he's got an amazing memory. He even remembers that the high priest's servant 
his friend Peter didn't remember his name. He, he might have remembered that he chopped off his ear. Boom. That's Peter. John remembers that the man's name is Malchus. Sixty years later, he remembers the name of someone who was a stranger to him. And, and he even remembers uh, what the feeding of the 5,000 would have cost if they'd had to buy all that bread. 200 penny worth of bread. John chapter 6 and verse 7. So, so what John's telling us by recounting all these specific details over and over again in his gospel, he's telling us something. It's like a billboard in your face. I was there. I was an eyewitness. You can trust what I'm writing, even though I'm writing 60 years after I experienced these things. In one of his letters, he writes this, and it's beautiful. In 1 John, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon in our hands have handled. He said, I saw Jesus. I talked to Jesus. I walked with Jesus. I touched Jesus. I touched God manifest in the flesh. He was the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and we bear witness, and we show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, but now it is manifested unto us. John said, I know he's God in the flesh because I walked with him. I saw what he could do. I saw how he handled himself, and so I'm a witness to you. Now, let, let me take a detour, and if you were here just before we left the old sanctuary, we were doing a series, and I touched on this, and if you'll forgive me, well, you don't have a choice. I've got the microphone. But So you better forgive me, though, because you won't go to heaven if you don't. So everybody say, I forgive Pastor Raymond. There, now you can go to heaven again. It gets good. You want to go to heaven from Bible study. But I want to detour into this for just a second because it's so beautiful. And it is the heart and the core of this last gospel that was ever penned. John was one of the original oneness Pentecostals of the first century. And so he's... At, 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 in the 90s, he's 90, and it's around the year A.D. 90 or 92 or 93, and, and, and he's writing because he wants to anchor future generations to truth because he's seen truth attacked. And, and you, you'll remember this. I hope you do. The Gospel of John, it records the seven I am statements of Jesus. He's the only Gospel writer who does it. Anybody remember that? The I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so these are the I am statements of Jesus in the gospel of John. And it's invisible in the English Bible because we only see a pronoun and a verb, I am. But in the ancient languages, it's the Greek phrase, ego I me. And so this sets up this tension in the Gospel of John that isn't there in the other Gospels, not in the same way at all. A carpenter from Nazareth of dubious parenting, uh, they think he's illegitimate. They think he's not virgin born. My goodness, they don't believe that. They think he's just a humble, poor, pauper 
carpenter from Nazareth. And he's walking around their streets and walking along their lake shores and walking up their roads. And he's using the name of God, I am, ego I me in the Greek. He's using that to refer to himself. And they know exactly what he's doing and they do not like it. Jesus, every time he says, I am, we see a pronoun and a verb, but here's what they hear. He is reaching back to the burning bush, the greatest moment of revelation in all of Hebrew history when God said unto Moses, I am that I am. You go to Pharaoh and you tell Pharaoh, I am hath sent me unto you. Every time Jesus says, ego I me in the Greek language, I am, we would say it. Every time he says that, he's reaching back into the greatest moment of Hebrew revelation, the greatest moment of Hebrew history, and he's using God's own eternal name to refer to himself. Now, they do not like that at all. And so here we sit in the 21st century, and entire denominations and many theologians totally miss this, but the Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was saying. When he said, I am, they knew that he was claiming unequivocally that he was God. And that's why if you read John chapter 8, just one of the chapters in this amazing gospel, it goes back and forth the whole chapter between Jesus and the Pharisees. He looks at them and he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they know he's not talking about, you know, some kind of mistake in his syntax. He hasn't messed up on grammar. Uh, before Abraham was, past tense, I am, present tense. No, they know he's using a name. Before Abraham ever left Ur of the Chaldees to follow a God that he couldn't see to a land that he's never seen, I was there. I'm the guy that gave Abraham the call. I'm the one that gave Abraham the direction. Before Abraham was, I I am. And if that didn't make him mad enough, he turned around at them. A few verses later, he said, if you believe not that I am, you will die in your sins. If you don't believe I'm almighty God, nothing works. Calvary doesn't work. The blood doesn't work. The sacrifice doesn't work. The resurrection doesn't work. The greatest revelation of all is who Jesus is. I'm so thankful that the cross works and the blood works and the resurrection works and baptism works and the Holy Ghost works and divine healing works because of the revelation of who Jesus Jesus is. And then he said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, kind of a cryptic statement, he said, then you shall know. On that day, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am. And he drives them crazy all through the Gospel of John because he keeps speaking this name because it's his name to use. And he speaks it at a well and that anonymous woman's life is changed forever. And he speaks his name in a storm. And a disciple named Peter is empowered by the Spirit of God to step out of a boat and walk on the waves of the sea. And he speaks that same name in a garden at midnight when they ask if he's Jesus. And he looks back at them and he says, I am. And an entire battalion of highly trained Roman soldiers fall backwards on the ground because when he said that eternity came down when he said that the angels stood at attention when he said that all of creation there was just a tingle up the back of the neck of creation because that was his name to use 
Now, here, here's where I want to revisit. Because when we were doing this series on the Word, you remember this. You remember for weeks we studied like Hebrew letters. You remember this. And, and so it comes down to this in John. That name in Hebrew is Yahweh, Yahweh. Comes from four letters. Hebrew reading from right to left. The Tetragrammaton, four letters. And, and so when they would look at this word, they would supply the vowel sounds. There was no direct pronunciation. They had to supply it to make it work because it was four consonants. To roughly translate that name into English, all we could come up with would be something like the eternal. And later in language, Y-H-V-H or Y-H-W-H, language changed. And it became in the English language, J-H-V-H. And so we don't say Yahweh. You, you can, but, but we say Jehovah. Same God, same name. It's that the language changed. And, and, and so John comes down to this moment. The gospel of John comes down to the crucifixion. Pilate wrote a title. He put it on the cross. The writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near to the city. And it was written for that multicultural society. It was written in Hebrew and in Greek and in Latin. Hebrew for the Jews, Greek for the Greeks, Latin for the Romans. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Don't you write the king of the Jews. Change it, Pilate. Add a word or two to it. Write, he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Literally, what I have written, I will not change one bit. You remember. Written over Jesus' head in Hebrew was, Yeshua Hanazari Vemelech HaYehudim. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. But all the Jewish leaders could say, see on that day those who had studied the scripture and studied the patterns of the word of God and studied the first letter of verses and the first letter of words, all they could see on that day was the first letter of each word. And like a billboard over Jesus' head on the cross was Yod He Vav He. Written like a billboard over the head of Jesus as he died was the name of the eternal God. I am that I am. Y H V H Yahweh written right over his head and that made them so angry. Pilate wouldn't change it. It was not a carpenter's blood that was being shed that day. See, John writes his gospel not to tell you just that Jesus was crucified. He writes his gospel to tell you exactly who it was that was crucified. That was God who had manifested himself in flesh, robed himself in a body of flesh. God can't die. He's spirit. He's eternal. But on that cross, the flesh, the body that God had prepared for himself, that part died. All of God, the elders used to say, all of God that could die, did die on that day on the cross to provide a sacrifice for your sin. That's how valuable you are to God that the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, would take on a body of flesh so he could shed blood to buy your salvation. That's how valuable you are. It was God that died. When we were studying in our other series, these little letters... It's even more beautiful than that because hidden in the name of God, remember the meanings of these names? Yod means hand and hey means behold. 
and vav means nail, and hey means behold. So literally written over the head of Jesus was yad hey vav hey, behold the hand, behold the nail. But the, the, the thing was, the, the amazing thing was, that had been hidden, contained in the name of God for centuries. And they saw it like a billboard on the cross, and that's what troubled them. All around the cross on the day of the crucifixion, creation spoke loudly. The sun darkened, and the earth shook, and the rocks split, and the graves opened, and the veil of the temple was rent from the top to the bottom. All around the cross, creation spoke loudly. But above the cross, that inscription spoke loudly. The word of God spoke loudly. The name of God spoke loudly. Behold the hand. Behold the nail. Yahweh is dying for you on this day. Wow. There's no way I'm teaching the gospel of John without reviewing that. It just keeps on going. The whole Gospel of John comes down to Thomas's declaration when he finally figures it out. And he sees these mortal wounds in the body of a living Savior. And he puts it together and he says, my Lord and my God. And he gets who Jesus is. That's the whole point of the Gospel of John. And Jesus wheels right around and points his finger at Thomas and said, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. But Thomas, blessed are they that have never seen me, and yet they believe. Thomas, there's going to be another group of apostolics in a different century on a different continent that you never knew and you never met. But they're going to get the revelation of who I am just like you got it, Thomas. They're going to have the same one God revelation that you just saw. They're going to see it without ever touching the nail prints in my hand, they're still going to lock it into their spirit that the Jesus that I worship is the God who created heaven and earth. That's who we are. That's who apostolic people are. Sister Kathy, come back and help me. Let me hasten. The Gospel of John is one of the last New Testament books to be written. And rightly so, because John had lived long enough to see 30 more years of church history than any of his peers. He had seen great revival, but he had also seen horrible persecution. He had lived long enough to see false doctrine and fake brethren and worldly lifestyles and pagan philosophies all try to infiltrate the church. He had lived long enough to watch the truth that he loved misrepresented and maligned by people who were saying they were preaching it. And he had watched, probably with a grieved heart, he had watched the might of that Roman Empire that we talked about a few moments ago. He had watched the might of the Roman Empire literally crush the life out of the people and the saints and the church congregations and the leaders that he loved. Rome had just massacred them. And it certainly seemed like the apostolic church would never even make it out of the first century. The odds were totally against them. They had no money. They had no great buildings. Their leaders had been slaughtered. Their saints had been scattered. 
culture was against them. People hated them. And it looked like the apostolic church was done for and would never even survive the first century. You see, John lived the longest. Only John lived long enough to see a massive Colosseum in Rome begun by the Emperor Vespasian in A.D. 72 and completed by his son Titus in A.D. 80. Much of the funding for that great arena in Rome came from the treasures that had been looted from the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70 when Titus served his father as a Roman general and when Titus led the armies of Rome against Jerusalem and they took all the treasures and the gold from the temple and they carted it back to Rome and they used that for funding to build this building. It was literally, that Colosseum in Rome was literally a slap in the face of God's people. And it served as a gruesome arena of death during the last years of John's life and for nearly 400 years after the apostle was gone. Thousands of Christians, your brothers and sisters, would be put to death in that monstrosity of a building in Rome and in many arenas like it all throughout the Roman Empire. They would be put to death in arenas like that as the crowds mocked the God they served and the gospel that they preached and bade for their blood. Rome was so strong and the church looked so weak they can't possibly the odds of history and culture and politics and power are against them there's no way that weak fledgling small church can make it out of the first century but 11 years ago this week I made my very first trip to that Colosseum in Rome it's still an impressive building after all these centuries. I was fascinated. Pastor Mike Hennessy was with me. He was younger. I just about exhausted him that day taking pictures. I was the consummate tourist. I've got photos of every angle of that building that they would let me in and some places that they wouldn't let me in. But out of all of that building, I was most fascinated by one little spot and one little thing. There's a huge cross in that building. It literally stands on the place where the throne of the Roman emperor sat in the royal box of the Colosseum in Rome where he watched the games, watched the executions, laughed as Christians were persecuted Watch as they were burned at stakes and ripped apart by wild beasts and killed by gladiators. And he laughed and he laughed because he had all power. He was the emperor of the then known world, Domitian. And that little fledgling church, there's no way they could possibly survive that. But the cross that stands on the spot where the Roman emperor used to sit in the Roman Colosseum, in the royal box, 
That cross does not represent the mangled bodies and the tortured demise of thousands of Christians. It doesn't represent the preferred method of execution used by the empire that once controlled the entire known world. No, that cross in the Roman Colosseum represents the crucifixion of a man named Jesus who never even entered the city of Rome in his entire lifetime. Long after the Roman Empire, the mighty Roman Empire, has crumbled into dust and it's just ruins for archaeologists to dig through and for tourists like me to take pictures of. That's all that's left. You can't even find where the grave sites of the Roman emperors are. Nobody remembers. But 2,000 years later, the apostolic church is alive and well on every continent of this planet. You've got brothers and sisters all around the world and we know many of them by name and we're connected to many of them through missions and we have survived and thrived and the Roman Empire is dust. It's just history. But the odds were against it. But culture was against them. But the politicians were against them. But it didn't matter. Because that church wasn't empowered by a religious notion or by a form of doctrine. It was empowered by God Almighty who had intersected time from eternity and had given His life. You know why they gave their lives for Jesus? Because He had given His life for them. You know why they loved Jesus? Because He had shown such love to them. You know why they survived the first century when every odd, every every notion of history said they couldn't? You know why they survived because he ever liveth to make intercession for us he's still alive and well he's still large and in charge and Jesus is here tonight and that brothers and sisters that's the gospel that's the gospel the cross is the centerpiece of the scripture the cross it gives us the gospel and I close by saying that if on this planet that you live on, your earth, your world, if there is a cross today standing on the spot where the Roman emperor used to sit and run the world, if that could happen, anything you need can happen. Any trial you're going through, God can get you through it. Any situation that perplexes your mind, God can deliver you from it. If there could possibly in history be a cross today standing on the spot where the world, the known empire of the known world, where that empire went up against the church, the little weak church, the little small church, the little underfunded and under-resourced church, if there could be a cross standing in that spot today, commemorating the sacrifice of Jesus, anything in your life is possible. Pastor Jack, anything in this church is possible. Anything in this city is possible. If that could happen, 
anything could happen. Anything could happen. Lift up your hands. Lift up your voice higher than those hands. Fill this room with expectant worship. By that I mean pray over your situation. Pray over your problems. Pray over your family. Pray over your sickness. Because brothers and sisters, if that could happen, anything could happen. If that could happen, it's a small thing for your backslider to come home. If that could happen, it's a small thing for your body to be healed. If that could happen, it's a small thing for God to lift you up out of that trial that you're walking through. If that could happen, anything could happen. If that could happen, your deliverance can happen. If that could happen, your miracle can happen. It's the power of the cross. Oh my goodness, we need to do just a little bit better than that. So would you stand to your feet and would you launch your hands and your voice toward that ceiling and beyond. Lift up a praise to the Lord because he's mighty, he's powerful, he's in charge, he runs the universe. Your problem doesn't run the universe. Your trial doesn't run your universe. Your sickness doesn't run your universe. God is in charge of you. God is in charge of your life. Oh, I need some people filled with the Holy Ghost and fire to just pray in the Spirit for a moment. It's just us. Pray in the Spirit for a moment. Mende 